0: So excited to have you joining us again for Courageous Conversations, sponsored by WILD with Lady Sheldon Watley and me, Dr. Kim Alexander. We're just excited today to have on our call Pastor Michael McBride, otherwise known as Pastor Mike. We're going to be in for a treat today as we step out of our comfort zone and really push in to what's going to make a difference for us as a people in the times in which we're living.
1: No, it's great to be here with you both, and I'm super excited to hang out, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with some awesome, righteous, amazing, magnanimous, stupendous, wonderful women of God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Pastor Mike. It is such an honor to have you with us today. Um, you have been so supportive of Wild and Women in Ministry. We are excited about joining forces with you and the Black Church Pact to engage First Ladies around the country to play an active role in this very, very important 2020 election cycle and beyond. And we just cannot thank you enough um, for having the courage to join us in a courageous conversation.
1: (laughs) Glad to be with you both. Um, All all of those descriptions and roles are, are really about just trying to serve God and serve my family and the people that God has given us to love. and so. Real honored to be with you both. I'm, I'm big uh, fans and supporters of of the ministries that uh, your families have collectively built, and so grateful grateful to be connected to you.
0: We're excited to have you today, and we really want to just dig into some courageous conversation around mass criminalization of people of color. I know you have a saying how we use our body, our ballot, and our bucks. So, we're going to talk about that mm. a little bit. We we'll talk about the fight for injustice and the work that we can do so that we can have a more equitable society. Gun violence, the census, why it matters, mm. and all of those kind of things. So I want to kick it off with the first question, just asking you to tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this field.
1: Well, you know, I'm a fourth-generation holiness Pentecostal. I grew up in the apostolic Pentecostal church. Some of you uh, may may or may not have heard of um, our kind of brand of Black church church. Um, spirituality, but, um, you know, I I was very much um, just on my way to heaven and oh so glad. I was a youth pastor at a pretty prominent church in San Jose, California, Bible Way Christian Center uh, that was kind of the Huey Rogers, um, Bishop Smallwood Williams kind of sect of apostolic Pentecostalism, and I got beat up by some cops in 1999, March of 1999. I was physically and sexually assaulted by some cops who you know, rough me up pretty good and would do a body cavity searches and just really violated me. And um, it really, of course, as a 19, 20 year old youth minister, it rocked my face. It made me have a moment of theodicy, you know, asking God, why did, why did this happen to me? Um, and my church and the youth in my youth school, we had grown our youth school to over hundred young people. We all just rallied together and we, you know, made a, a really big, statement about it, but one of the things that happened in my youth group, in a Bible study one night, they were telling me, you know, Brother Mike, this happens to us all the time, and I was like, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, you know, um, we get harassed by the cops, and some of our friends are, are dying in dumb violence, and this happens to us all the time. I said, well, how come you all never brought it up? And they told me we did not believe that the church was a place where we could bring this part of our lives, and it really be addressed. And I was convicted, I felt by the Holy Spirit in that moment, uh, with this question, what was it about the ministry that I have created for these young folks and their families, where they can trust me with the um, salvation of their souls, but not the safety of their bodies. And um, for me, from that moment on, um, I realized that I had to really interrogate, what does it mean to have um, a ministry that, again, when you start you know, take a deeper dive into all of our uh, Black church traditions have always fused uh, what, you know, some Wesleyan uh, Methodist folks say, social holiness and personal holiness, Hmm. Um, that it's not enough to have personal piety um, and then allow the wickedness of the systems of the world to erase our humanity. And that became, for me, uh, the catalyst that forced me to think deeply about my own trauma and pain, but also the trauma and pain of my young people. And I ended up going to Duke Divinity School. Uh, While I was there, I met Eugene Rivers and a number of other folks who uh, had done a fascinating job of fusing um, both a radical Holy Ghost powered faith with a very social, ethical, uh, deeply um, religious sensibility around Political and social engagement, and um, it's been about twenty years, and I've been been trying to be faithful to that.
2: Wow, that's impressive. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about Live Free and how you got engaged um, with Live Free? Because obviously, it was just a extension of what you were already doing. And kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. So,
1: so, so Live Free. Um, Actually started in 2009, 10. Um, we were a part of a national network of faith congregations, which was part of like the thing that really fascinated me. I saw, rather than having to go to the NAACP, God bless NAACP, or the ACLU, God bless ACLU, or in, in any of these other formations, um, I really wanted to figure out how could I bring my whole congregation into a social justice faith-based organizing effort that was not personality-driven, but people-driven. Um, because I realized that uh, systems are changed by people. They're not changed by personalities. They're not changed by like a, a singular hero or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would have, you know, flipped the country upside down, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you need a massive movement of people to shift unjust systems. And so um, while we were, you know, engaging in the the faith in action at that time called the pico network um a number of pastors were in washington dc during obama's first several months and uh i actually had one of my members there um in a conversation with melanie campbell and a few other folks and we were asking them about urban issues what we all plan to do around gun violence around you know uh, urban uh, initiative for poverty and the the transition team told us that was not on their first agenda. If they can get a second term, they would hope to like get to that. But they were going to do broader issues that did affect Black people, but they weren't going to have a targeted approach. Um, a number of us were sitting in a conversation: uh, a pastor from Flint, Michigan, Ira Edwards; a pastor from uh, uh, Newark, New Jersey, uh, or no, Camden, New Jersey, um, Hayward Williams; pastors from Oakland and Los Angeles. We had all buried about two or three teenagers in the past six months, and we were just sitting there just sharing our stories about, man, how are all these young people in our communities dying, and the only, our only response is to bury them. Like, we don't have any strategy to stop them from dying, and I mean, we were, we felt terrible about it. I mean, one of the pastors started to cry, you know, he's like, I'm 60-something years old, and I never thought that the only time I see a young person that I don't know is at a funeral. And so we started to think very deeply about what would it mean for us to launch a national campaign to end gun violence in urban communities. Um, and we called it at the time, Lifelines to Healing. Um, when I got beat up by the cops in 99, Michelle Alexander at the time, who we all know, uh, has written The New Jim Crow, was working for the ACLU. Mm-hmm. She kind of became my de facto lawyer. Me and her became very, very good friends. And so she called me one day. She was like, hey, Michael, I got this new book I'm getting ready to put out called The New Jim Crow. I'd love for you to read it. And so I read it, and you know, I was like, I don't know, Michelle. This sounds like a lot of conspiracy theories. I don't think people are really ready for it, you know? And I, I and mean, her joke, I was like, I'm so glad you didn't listen to me. You know, I was being a, <laughs> I was, you know, so, or, or the world wouldn't have changed, you know? So, uh, Lifelines to Healing um, started with gun violence. We brought Michelle Alexander's book into our campaign very early, and we crafted a campaign that took seriously the issue of violence in Black and brown communities and mass incarceration in Black and brown communities and the unique role that faith communities had to play if we were going to end these realities, and we started in 2009 and 10. And um, we've been cooking ever since, and uh, it's been a great great blessing. It's been hard, but, you know, ain't nobody afraid of no hard work.
0: Yeah, yeah. I got a chance to hear Michelle Alexander when she came to Charlotte to speak on her book, and it was so moving. I know you talk about um, the massive move of people to get us engaged. If you were to identify what top three issues would you think the church needs to address during this election year that would make the Mm. biggest difference? We've been... I think in the past, people have called us more of a reactive people than a proactive people. Mm. And as you share, it makes me think about this uh, targeted plan that we need to have. And if we can fully engage churches across denominations, what what are the top three things that you think we should tackle and how?
1: Well, in in this particular moment, we have to ensure that the COVID-19 response Mm -hmm. post-COVID-19 has a targeted plan to address Black America. We are being disproportionately impacted, not only in our physical bodies, but in our economic um, and our um, um, access to health care. You know, we need to ensure that all of our cities that have disproportionate impact around COVID have a, a disproportionate recovery, meaning... There has to be an overinvestment in our communities to help us get back on our feet, which then means that we then, if that's the first thing. The second thing is we have to build enough political power to pull that lever. And that means that we need to be registering people to vote. We need to be following what I think is wisdom, a massive either absentee ballot campaign or a massive strategy to ensure that we we get our folks to the polls in november even if it means us having to figure out how to staff the poll working stations with more of our people this is one impact that we just don't fully appreciate we won't know that many of the poll workers in our precincts are black church older people oh yep and if they are the most vulnerable due to this virus Mm -hmm. They can't staff the precinct. So that means younger people, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, 25 to 50, we have to now (laughs) step into that gap and ensure that we have polling places that are, you know, um, having uh, poll security, you know, watchers and things like that to make sure no funny business happens. So, you know, just again to recap, COVID, uh, we need to ensure that we have our our voting uh, strategies together. And then I think we need to have a series of issue campaigns that, that continue to address issues of violence in our communities, both intimate partner violence, interpersonal violence with gangs, and et cetera. Um, we, uh, we need to address the, the police violence that we are now seeing re-emerging in our country in a moment, a pandemic moment, police seem to be ratcheting up their uh, uh antagonization of black people um and white vigilantes are seemingly to kind of come in in that as well so we're gonna have to keep our eye on on both a systemic and a kind of interpersonal response as the black church because we one thing the black church represents we don't just represent institutions we represent real people mm-hmm. like all of us whether you are a storefront church or not If you have 20, 30, 40 people attending your church every week, you have more people than the local NAACP in your city, most likely, Mm -hmm. that you can touch every week. You, as a storefront church, have more people you represent more often than not than some of these organizations that claim to speak on our behalf. So it's important for us to take our power seriously, coalesce it, and then leverage it on behalf of the collective whole
2: so um i couldn't agree with you more um just my day-to-day job just seeing um the money that's coming out of capitol hill you know there are some folks who are working really hard on the behalf of the african-american community senator kamala harris your mayor in san francisco mayor keisha lance bottoms Mm -hmm. you know um, it makes me very proud um to see how the african-americans are really trying to push these issues forward to make sure that we're taken care of but what um and I really liked your three points of the things that we need to address, but can you walk us through a little bit about how you propose that we execute the plan? Like what is
1: the, either
2: the black church pack or live free? Like, do you have a plan or a blueprint for us so that we can carry the message not only with our churches, but you know, the other churches that we are connected to, how we can use other first ladies pastors that we work with, um,
1: that would be helpful.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'll give you two quick frameworks, and then we will be glad to
1: um, help sponsor more trainings for folks, either virtually or in person, as we get uh, closer to um, you know uh, not only the day of election, but just you know as people have interest. So the first thing I'll say is we talk about proclamation policies and programs. That's like one framework and the second framework will be 10-10-10, all right? So let me talk about proclamation policies and programs. Our engagement as a institution like the black church and or as black clergy faith leaders and or as uh, first ladies or youth paths, all of us have a network of influence. Social media has allowed us to have a echo chamber of influence, right? Mm-hmm. And so, proclamations then are about how we use our spoken word, the the ways in which we communicate, either through sermon, song, teachings, study. How do we help align people around a shared narrative proclamation? Uh, to you know, from a biblical, prophetic perspective, to boldly proclaim the word of God, not just Scripture, but thus says the Lord, as relates to justice, as relates to the care for the poor as it relates to how do you ensure your family flourishes? How do we create a series of structured proclamations that teach and train and politicize people about the things we care about? Often, now that we have virtual church happening, we have more conversations cropping up, thankfully, about the social conditions of our of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been to church my whole life. I don't need to continue to be taught about John 3.16. I know about John 3.16. And I guarantee you the sinner knows about John 3.16. <laughs> what they may not know about is what does God have to say about poverty? What does God have to say about justice? What does God have to say about taking care of the least of these? They may not know that. So proclamation is about structuring teachings. Policies. What does it mean for us to take seriously that our words create policy framework? So that means that we have to also train our folks on organizing, having one-to-one conversations with each other. What would it look like for you and I to take seriously that while we are sheltering in place, quarantined, or not able to meet together, that we can still create phone trees that you call 10 people every week to... To check in with them about what they're willing to do over the next 10 days or 10 weeks. That's the 10-10-10 plan, right? Mm-hmm. That you say, I am going to personally be responsible for ensuring 10 people in my circle of influence are being educated about the policy decisions that are happening over the next 10 weeks, right? And I'm going to ensure, say, over the next 10 months, and it may be shorter than that, we get them to the post. It is about us structuring an engagement strategy that is about our proclamations, our policies, and then the programs I think most of us have down pat, feeding, housing, the kind of uh, community development work, you know, clothing the, sick, clothing the, the naked, uh, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, visiting those who are in jails. We as Black church, I think, are heavy on programs, but not as heavy on policies. And so I think we have to start to shift ourselves a little bit. It's just a different muscle and invite all of the folks in our congregations who are experts at some of this stuff. I mean, many of our congregations have people in our congregations who know this stuff like the back of their hand, but they're hiding out in our congregations because they don't have a pathway to help our churches kind of refine this or our partnerships aren't with the kind of organizations that can help us do this. So, Proclamation policy programs, I think, are three kind of buckets of work, and 10-10-10 gives you a schedule 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, so you can hold folks accountable for producing in a kind of systematic way uh, either activities that lead to results.
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you so much. Um, Sometimes if you have a huge ship, you just change the rudder just a little bit. It can change the direction of the entire (laughs) ship. So that focus on programs that we're good at. If we look more at proclamation and policy, I know the difference will come. I want to shift a little bit and um, talk about the census, uh, because I think this is Mm. a huge part of us as a people. We are historically undercounted. we are right. uh, and have been. Uh, what are the causes for that? Uh, what are the results? And what can we do to change it?
1: Yeah, the, the, the census is a every 10 years, right? Um, the country uh, sends out this massive effort uh, to count constituency groups, to count folks that are here from undocumented to people who are quote unquote citizens, folks excuse me, who are in jail and folks who are not. Black folks, white folks, men, women, households. Single, I mean, uh, it's, it's an effort to ensure that when decisions are made, the, particularly around budgets and resources and allocations and funding formulas, that those uh, formulas and budgets are getting from our tax dollars. Again, this is our money, our tax dollars. This is not the government's money. They are stewards of our tax dollars. So we should have the ability to decide how and where these tax dollars are spent. If we are not counted, certain communities will get funding formulas that are more heavy uh, than others. And we have a challenge in the Black community because of mass incarceration and because many of our loved ones are incarcerated in cities that are largely white rural communities. Like in some cities, 90% of their city's population are people incarcerated. Their prisons are counted by, or uh, the the prisons count towards the city's population where they reside. So you can imagine that if my uh, brother is incarcerated, even though his address is in Oakland, but he's incarcerated in you know fresno fresno will get the tax dollars associated to my brother so when he returns home he has no government allocation Mm -hmm. for his stability if that makes sense so the census is really important for all of us to appreciate that if we don't get every person in our family counted then other people are making decisions about how school roads Hospitals. And we are seeing right now the impact of southern states not having hospitals and beds available when people get sick. My brother in Georgia almost died from COVID because he could not get care in the hospital in Atlanta, metro area, Emory all the way down because Georgia doesn't take Medicare, Obamacare. And they have been closing hospitals down in the south for the last five or six years, and now they don't have enough beds to house the sick. So you and I participating in the census will literally save your life. It'll save your family's life. It'll make sure SNAP, food programs for members in our churches don't run out, Head, Head Start and daycare, making sure our working families have uh, places for their kids to go and get educated while we hold down one or two jobs. Um, ensuring that there are uh, senior care centers, ensuring that bridges and roads and, 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 and Pell Grants and on and on, all of this is funded based off of the formula created from who gets counted. So it's very important for churches to take seriously because of this tragedy of COVID. The census has been extended, I believe, until maybe August. Yes. Um, And so we now have several months to do a massive virtual census project. Mm -hmm. We should be be spreading that information. You can do it all virtually. Uh, Well, most of it virtually, or you can do it virtually, or they can mail you a a census form. But it's really, really important for us as good stewards of the earth, of the democracy of our families, to make sure we're counted uh, before the end of uh, uh, July, August.
2: Thank you so much for your work um, in that regard. You're so absolutely correct. Um, and we are seeing it. And it's, it, it's heartbreaking um, to see our people not being able to get the care that they need to be able to go yeah. to a hospital. You know, I have literally, I had to stop watching the news because, um, you know, we love our people. We love all people. And to see African-Americans right. being hurt um, exponentially yeah. by this um yeah. Unseen tragic uh, pandemic. It's just um, unbelievable. So I want to talk to you a little bit about going back to COVID. Um, what role do you see the church? You know, we'll never be the same, right? That's right. We'll never be the same. That's right. And it's a moment. Um, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, "You know, never let a tragedy go to waste," where we can yeah. actually you know, transform church and how, you know, and Mm -hmm. go about it in a different way and reaching more people. You know, a lot of the pastors we've been talking to, they're seeing a a greater number of folks actually going online and watching service and being engaged and joining. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, God is showing himself mighty and showing himself strong through this. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, kind of where you see the church going and how we can really use this as an opportunity to um, really spread
1: uh, the gospel? Yeah, I mean, I always believe that um, when the world is falling down, it is an opportunity for God's people to stand up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We can't stand though if we are, um, you know, subscribing to or preaching um, a, a unfaithful gospel message. And I do believe the Black Church, in particular, has to become much more clear about um, our unique role in the wealthiest country of this age. Now, we we may be seeing the demise of the United States of America. With you know, not hyperbolic, you know, uh, there, we are a crippled nation right now. Some people are in other countries are describing us as a failed nation state because of the inability of our government to protect. our its citizens from this virus, as well as the inequities that are all around us. So the Black church, I think, has to divest itself from a kind of gospel that is radically individualized, that focuses too much on capital and not people, that focuses too much on buildings and not family networks and You know, we we have to reimagine what our task is to care for the whole of creation. And that may mean that some of us, particularly who are men that are used to having lots of exclusive control, have to reimagine our leadership to be much more inclusive of women, um, uh, folks who live in the margins, including our gay brothers and sisters, uh, folks who are incarcerated, folks who may find themselves unhoused folks who may find themselves living in a very kind of precarious and poverty-stricken spaces. We may have to start to create a different kind of leadership table and structure that allows these various voices of our communities to have input, dare I say, some leadership in helping us save our people in this moment. Peter, in the book of Acts, when he was speaking after the day of Pentecost, and they all received the Holy Spirit, uh, and 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 were with great joy meeting together. Peter told them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. The good old King James Version says, untoward, right. right, generation. Right. But, but it's important to appreciate that often we interpret yourselves as like you personally, yourselves, when in actuality the Greek is speaking about a plural, a we. We must save ourselves as a collective from this corrupt, generation this corrupt era this way of thinking that would make you and i think that just because i live in a home my neighbor does not uh require my commitment for their survival so i do believe that as we have moved to a more kind of uh you know virtual church experience where we have decentered the physical building now i'm not one who believes that um you know, we don't need to meet physically together because I think there's something about, you know, us as a community, having physical, imagine some people only get a loving touch per week when they pass the peace at church. Their title as sister, deacon, Mm -hmm. brother, Mm -hmm. minister, gives them dignity that they may not get when they are working in a particular profession. So the physical gathering, I think is still important. But what do we do with our, our, the way we structure our lives and our relationships when we can't depend on a building? This, this, I think, is the question. How do we expand who belongs to us? And I know that the Black church can often um, you know, be defined, more or less, by who we exclude. But I, I think we need to be asking ourselves a different question in this moment. How broad can we open our arms and, and, and have the sinners, quote-unquote, whoever you describe to be a sinner, running to you like they ran to Jesus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like the only folks who seemed to run away from Jesus were the religious folk and the folk over-invested in the empire. But the, the, the sex workers ran to Jesus. The sick ran to Jesus. The poor ran to Jesus. Even some of the wealthy folks ran to Jesus. Not because they figured they had it all worked out, but Jesus offered them a solution that radically changed the way that they endured life. And so my prayer for the church, particularly the black church, is that we would divest from this system of white supremacy, human hierarchy, uh, capitalistic kind of preoccupation, put people back at the center of our ministries understand that our building should be in service to the people, not our people in service to buildings. That the system should be in service to the people, not us trying to uphold a political or ideological set of commitments. I think that we are well poised to do that um, with a lot of holy imagination and, and a lot of divine courage.
0: Praise God. Well, that's courageous. You're pushing Mm -hmm. us outside the boundaries. And (laughs) I'm excited about a courageous conversation that really challenges us because we are the church. The church isn't a building. Uh, mm-hmm. And, as we are having to adjust in this time, it really um, makes us think about what really matters and what 's really important and how can we be connected and It redefines who is my neighbor, which it should have been all along no, as we no. begin to think about mm-hmm. who our neighbor is so thank you so much for being with us today and for joining no, us my, my pleasure it 's been a great time. We appreciate you
2: we absolutely do and no, I'm, 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 no i i no no i say i 'm honored <laughs> just let. Go ahead, I was just gonna say you have to let us know how you know where can we go where can individuals go listeners go to become more engaged to learn more about what you're doing to sign up um, please
1: yeah yeah I, there's a couple things you can do live free USA is kind of like our big kind of faith-based effort around gun violence and mass incarceration we, we launched a mask for the people. Many of you may have been hearing about this effort to get free masks and hand sanitizer uh, out to black communities where the COVID virus is disproportionately impacting. So livefreeusa.org, you can visit there. You can see you know, a lot of content and information about the work we're doing. And then the blackchurchpac.org yes. is where you can go to um, really tie into the political organizing work that we're doing um, you, you you should just continue to remind yourself that, um, God has put power in our hands and, and to the extent that we can activate this power, uh, no weapon formed against us will prosper. And so my hope is that you and your listeners see us as a resource. I'm super excited about the First Ladies Network that you and, and, uh, Lady Watson, Alexander, and Lady Jenkins, and others are going to help us build out through this country. It is not a secret that Black women drive the uh, voting election, and dare I even say the Black church in general. So we we want to really help make sure that the first ladies, the pastors' wives, the 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 the, the, the women pastor leaders in the country have a real strong um, network that's resourced, so we can make sure your voices, your strategies, your ideas are helping uh, save ourselves from this untoward generation. So love you both. Thanks for having me and I look forward to us rocking.
2: Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We can't thank you enough. I'm just so excited. You. It's awesome to see your face, to hear your voice, to be engaged. <laughs> you inspire yeah. and just get me excited about, okay, we got to get out here. Yes. and <laughs> So thank you for taking <laughs> time out.
0: I want to thank you again, Pastor Mike, for being with us today, upcoming on Courageous Conversations. We're going to have a Courageous Conversation on Friendship with LaDonna Hughley and Sandra Campbell. I'm so looking forward to that. We're just glad that you were able to listen today. Thank you for joining us on Courageous Conversations, where we have courage to converse about topics that engage you, inspire you, and challenge you. Have a great day. Yeah.